0: Hi everyone, you are listening to episode 5 of Agenda 23. I'm Mackenzie Feldman and I'm joined by my co-host John Eichard. If you're just tuning in, Agenda 23 is all about food and agriculture conversations between generations and we are interested in setting our own agenda for the 2023 Farm Bill. Before we start, I just want to give a quick shout out to King, our editor and producer for this podcast. Without him, this would not be possible. We are very excited today for our special guest, Lindley Dixon. Lindley is a co-director of the Real Organic Project. She's a farmer at the Adobe House Farm in Durango, Colorado. Lindley has a master's degree in plant and soil science and a PhD in plant pathology. Before farming in Durango, Lindley worked at USDA identifying plant diseases. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think to start, John, I'll kick it off to you.
1: Okay. One of the things that we want to talk about today is the Real Organic Project. You know, you're the co-director of the Real Organic Project, was involved in this from the beginning. So we'd like to get a little background on the Real Organic Project, why it was started, why you became involved in it personally. So if you just want to share some ideas, we'll just have a conversation about it. But we'd like to hear thoughts on on that project.
2: Well, I think the best way to describe it, it's kind of a movement that sprung out of some of the failures of the USDA organic certification. Back in 2017, a lot of farmers started to, well, even before that, they started to notice that there was this influx of a lot of tomatoes, farmers that were wholesaling. Um, were getting dropped in some of their markets. And uh, so we did some investigating trying to figure out, you know, where was all this product coming from? And it was certified organic uh, tomatoes, uh, mostly from Mexico, where labor can be, you know, $12 a day. And so, you know, even just competing on labor alone, but also it was allowed to be um, certified as organic and grown hydroponically. And that didn't sit right uh, with our, written standards and with the way uh, all of us have been farming, you know, and, and the elders have been farming for 50 years by, you know, fostering soil fertility. So that's kind of what started getting the farmers coming back together after, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of saying, hey, we built this organic movement. Now, you know, the certification process is all running on its own. Um, but then they started to wake up and say, hey, maybe this isn't turning out to be exactly as we intended it. And once they got together, they started to talk about all these other problems. KFOs getting certified as organic, uh, fraudulent grain coming in, uh, failure to enforce the pasture rule in dairy. And so it became clear that we needed to kind of reactivate, reignite this organic movement that was so strong. Uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago and get all the farmer voices to really be amplified. And that's what the Real Organic Project is all about. And the beautiful thing for me is that a lot of the elders that I looked up to in terms of how I wanted to figure out how to farm, you know, Elliot Coleman is very involved. Um, Dave Chapman, I've, you know, learned how to grow tomatoes from him. And they were reaching out and saying, you know, you know, hey, we need your voice too. We need the next generation to kind of step up and and become leaders of this organic movement. And we want to be able to pass it down uh, and, and be proud of our life's work and, and you know carry it forward in the way that we had all intended it to be in the in the practices that are real organic. I know that you know it's very exciting to see that the organic industry is a $50 billion industry now and growing. Um, but there's there's two ways to grow the organic movement. You can either lower the standards and then get a lot more organic product on the shelves, and I'm afraid that's what we've done in the last 10, 20 years. Or you can get more organic farmers and really, and you know, the acreage has gone up in organic acreage, but the number of farms has gone down. And so in my own community, I know it's different everywhere, the scene is a little bit different, but one in 20 farmers succeeds that tries to do it here. And the next generation wants to farm organically and, and we're not succeeding. And I think the Real Organic Project addresses some of those issues as well.
1: It's something we want to talk about a little bit later, but you know, it might help if we had government programs that truly encourage organic production rather than subsidizing industrial production. The price difference might narrow somewhat if we did. What do you see as, as kind of the ultimate objective of the Real Organic Project? Are you Want to develop alternative uh, labeling, alternative standards that would kind of go beyond be an add-on standard? Or do you have some other ideas in mind about where the organic movement should go?
2: We do have a label, and that is a core part of our mission is, is to be able to distinguish pasture-raised livestock, soil-grown produce you know, really with an emphasis uh, on healthy soils and and ecological farming. And so uh, a way to differentiate that from the industrial organic products uh, is, is, is kind of a primary mission. And so we do that with this blue, label with a green leaf in the middle and the, the um, gold ring and start looking for it. It's, it's actually making its way onto the shelves. And I think, you know, it is a better product. It, it is a more nutritious product. And so I think there needs to be a way to distinguish it. And right now, the industry is not being transparent or honest about the way they're producing the food on their labeling. So, you know, you've got that picture of the chickens on the pasture. And then the reality is they're all in a, in a building. And right. <laughs> if you email Driscolls and you say, Do you grow hydroponically? They say, No, we don't. You yeah. know, we're container growers. And so they've redefined, uh, you know, what hydroponic right. growing means. They say it's only in water. Whereas if you're giving 100% of the fertility through liquid feed, you know, that is input substitution. Right. In organic agriculture, that is hydroponic according to the scientific definition of what hydroponic is. So there's, there's a lack of transparency, and we're trying to bring that back to the marketplace.
1: Are you thinking in terms of the standards of something that would be difficult, if not impossible, to kind of co opt again? You know, I could see early on when they adopted the original organic standards. In fact, I wrote a paper about it. The idea of industrializing something is specialized, then standardize. Once you standardized it, then whoever can meet the minimum standards at the lowest cost basically takes the market. Yeah. So, are you considering when you develop your standards that uh, it'll be difficult to carry out uh, real organic on a, a large scale industrial operation?
2: It's it's a great point that um, the you know once you allow kind of the lower standard, you almost mandate it because that's the cheaper way and the market forces just amplify, you know, that production practice. Uh, What's been lost is this idea of continuous improvement that was always part of the organic movement. And instead of kind of being a floor and continuing to improve and having, you know, operations really push themselves to do better, especially now that climate change is such a big deal and consumers want to support farms, that wasn't really part of our Standards initially, but um, you know that's the idea of continuous improvement. As we learn, you know, we need to kind of incorporate climate um, decisions in our farming. You know, uh, in our farming, and consumers want to reward farms that do that. So, continuous improvement has always been a part of the organic movement. And I, I hear what you're saying that. Real organic can can be co-opted. And when we met with Vilsack last week, that was his question. It was, well, you know, what about the real, real organic movement coming right behind you? And, you know, they're going to say that their practices are even better. And my response to that is, you know, that may be true. You know, we may get to a point 20 years down the road where we need more life in in the real organic project. And um, it's always about the people and if we can keep it democratic and the voice of the the farmers, you know, uh, very strong, a farmer-led movement. Uh, and, and it truly is representative of the organic community I, I think it's going to be difficult to co-opt we are the, that's who's behind this project it's not coming from a brand or a company so I, that would be my advice for consumers too to whether or not you can trust a label look who's behind it and if if you feel like it truly is a real grassroots movement then it's going to be much harder to co-opt of course i can't say that we're foolproof but right. i feel better about it right now because it because it truly is the move farmer led movement good
0: i have so many questions What I first want to ask is, you say one of the coolest things about Real Organic Project is that it is farmer-led. Is that hard to get farmers off of their farm and to be involved in creating these standards and upholding it? I'm curious what these are that come with that. <laughs>
2: yes. And so we make it as easy as possible because everyone who works for the Real Organic Project, we were all farmers. That's a prerequisite to work for us. Uh, I farm Dave Chapman, the co-director farms. So we understand uh, how difficult it is just to pass the USDA certification process. It's a lot of paperwork. And of course, there are a lot of organic farmers out there that never want to go through it. And those are organic farmers in my book, you know. But for this is kind of to help, um, you know, farms that are ready. To move beyond those direct sales how can you find a niche in the marketplace and so um you know a lot of small farms have joined uh not because they need an extra label they've got great communication you know with their customers about what they do but they do want to be part of of a movement and they are inspired by community and that's the reason why a lot of people got usda certified in the beginning so the small farmers are doing that but then you know i'm kind of at this point 11 years into my farming career where I can't grow anymore because I've, the direct markets are, you know, we've grown to what our local community can handle. You know, there's so many CSAs in the area. The farmer's market is pretty crowded. If I want my farm to continue to grow, and I do, I have extra land. I need to get into those grocery stores. And I think customers want the convenience of being able to purchase their local farmers in the grocery stores. And so that's where our label is really useful. And of course, we love the support of the small farmers and the certification is free. The um, the inspection process isn't about you know, show me the paperwork. It's about let's walk through your farm and talk about our farm systems and let's record some of the amazing things that we're do, you're doing so that we can communicate that to the customer and so we can communicate that to the next farmer coming along and they can learn those techniques too. So it's very much about you know farmer information sharing and um, making it really easy on the farmer and not paperwork burdensome or, or you know the cost of certification just isn't a barrier.
0: Are a lot of the farms that Real Organic Project works with already USDA certified? Is the farm you work on now USDA organic certified?
2: It is a prerequisite to get the add-on certification. And there are a lot of farmers that support our movement, like Elliot Coleman, for example. I don't think Leah Penneman's farm is certified and she's on our board. They're farming organically. They just don't see the need for the USDA organic label, but they're still you know, a part of our project and supportive of it because they like the idea of the organic movement coming together.
1: Right now you have to have the USDA organic certification in order to qualify for the real organic certification. Yeah,
2: let me say the reason why we did that is because we do not want to abandon government. I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, when, when the farmers came together, I wasn't around during this, but what I've heard is that there was a real need because everybody was saying, you know, I'm organic, but there was no universal definition of what that meant. So I think there really is a need for enforcement and and the government can provide that. And I okay. think, you know, there is, a, you know, I, I do believe that we, we need government to represent us. And so if we can apply enough pressure and if someday the USDA will you know, acknowledge and have our standards be their standards, or at least acknowledge and and actually um, change some of the problems, uh, you know, just be better about enforcement, the real organic project can go away. So that's the idea is that we're actually exerting pressure on the system to improve.
0: Speaking of government, we really wanted to ask you about the conversation with Vilsack. Uh, For those of you who want to know more about Vilsack, me and John talk a lot about how we feel about him in our first episode. Lindley, can you explain to us what this meeting was about, who was there and how you felt after reactions?
2: Yeah, it started. Francis Thicky or Tiki and uh, Dave Chapman came together and said, you know let's let's explain why the real organic project exists to our new um, secretary of ag and uh, also cc everybody who's on the agricultural committees all the senators all of congress um, who's involved and they listed those five points that i talked about at the beginning you know grain fraud uh failure to enforce the grazing standard for dairy Uh, cafos getting certified which most mostly affects poultry um Uh, the certification of hydroponics as organic, you know, these, these problems. Oh, and then the origin of livestock for dairy has been a huge problem because there's, it's just a huge loophole for bringing in continuously bringing in conventional um, replacements and dairy replacement cows. So I think uh, listing them out and then we got 43 NOSB members, former NOSB members to sign it. And uh, a lot of the current NOSB members wanted to be involved and they, they've since signed on. So I think, um, you know, just laying it out plainly and uh, he responded, we were actually surprised. He gave us 45 minutes and there were uh, six member, all members of Real Organic Project Policy um, or um, our standards board um, represented. And they, you know, divided up each explained um, each problem more thoroughly and um, Vilsack responded. I think it was it's a good sign that he was there, you know, and gave us the time and listened. Uh, I was a little bit more discouraged and listening. Some everybody had a different reaction. Some people hung up the phone. We talked afterwards and they said they had some hope. Uh, I was really discouraged. The OLPP um, is, is a, an animal welfare reform that was passed, under Vilsack during the Obama administration. It was dropped by the Trump administration. It basically was gonna get rid of the CAFO poultry problem that we have where now, you know, 10 years ago, over 70% of the organic eggs were coming from confinement. And now uh, I'm sure it's worse. And uh, Vilsack said, I don't think there's anything we can do about this. You know, our uh, we, we have to answer to what this is going to do to the marketplace. And that has a really big effect on our decision making. And so we're going to run the numbers again through the Office of Budget and Management. You know, I think we did it wrong back when we were, (laughs) um, you know, four years ago. And, you know, the Trump administration did it as well. And, you know, maybe they had some problems. And so we're going to run it again. And it, it, it kind of made it seem like this, this is going to have too big of an effect on the marketplace because so many of the organic eggs now come from CAFOs that we can't disrupt the industry, almost like a too big to fail. That was what he was saying. And this is just devastating because that was something that was passed and it was through and it's, you know, it was a final rule under Vilsack? That was the biggest surprise. But the other thing he said, which is I think what some people got hope around is that this, uh, hydroponic issue in organic is not, uh, a done deal, not solved. And that is very different from what we are hearing from the Trump administration. So I think people were, had a little bit of hope from that one.
1: I happen to have an opportunity to uh, review the economic study that was done for the uh, livestock or welfare uh-huh. standards in poultry at that time, that they had a economist do a report on the market impact of if they enacted the standards and put them into place. And at that particular time, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was when the initial proposal came up before the Trump administration, there were basically only 12 large egg producers that would have been affected at that time by these standards. They were producing a significant quantity of the total amount of eggs, but only 12 would have been affected. All of the other producers at that time were already meeting the standards that would have been imposed. And they were making arguments, you know, that if they did away with that, then it was going to be disruptive to the industry and prices would go down the market. I, I said, you know, if the big operators went out, you reduce the supply and the prices actually would go up. Absolutely. And another point I, I made, I said, if the organic egg consumer today actually knew that their eggs were coming from these large confinement operations, you would find that the prices would be even lower. Mm-hmm. My argument was: whenever they find out that they're coming from there, then the market is actually going to be adversely affected, and you're going to basically diminish the profitability of organic egg production. Once the consumers find out, there'd been studies done in the United Kingdom at that time that they showed that that animal welfare was a big consideration in terms of consumer demand and what they were willing to pay for eggs and for animal products. But anyway, that's just an aside because. At, at least at the time I reviewed that report, that market disruption thing was simply wasn't valid. It was 12 big operators that were threatening the future of the industry for the rest of them that were there at that time. Most of those others may be gone by now, but at that time, it was not a big issue.
2: Well, 12 producers shows, but and how much of a big issue it is, shows you how much power and influence right. industrial agriculture has, and, and probably a huge you know, I, I heard the number 70% uh, from Miles McAvoy back then. And I think it's even more now, but just 12 producers producing 70% right. of the eggs, you know, that's the money and power that we're dealing with. Right. And I didn't even put the link together until, you know, getting together with the real organic project. Why isn't the USDA Uh, keeping track of these ships coming in with fraudulent organic grain. Why aren't they stopping this? You know, Europe, you know, cut it out right away. They decertified some of the, you know, the fake inspectors and accredited certifiers that were allowing this to happen. Why isn't the NOP doing this? It seems really easy to track the ships, according to John Bovey, who is doing it. And then it hit me. It's like, they want this grain because so much of the organic industry depends on this cheap grain, you know, in the CAFOs. And so it just, it became obvious that they they didn't really want to stop the fraud. Too many people were profiting off of it.
1: Mackenzie, you had a question there. I interrupted with that comment, but go ahead.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that, John. What were the responses when you said that back?
1: Well, I was just, uh, I was reviewing it for Center for Food Safety. I reviewed it for them. They sent Mm -hmm. it to me and asked me to write a review of it because they were involved, you know, in trying to promote the change in the standard. And so I I wrote them a review of it. I don't know where it ever went from there, but I wrote a review of that economic analysis that had been done and made the points that I made here. Got it. Wow. You know, I spent a considerable amount of time going through that economic feasibility of implementing these humane standards or welfare standards on organic.
0: It's really cool and sad that nothing has changed. Lindley, I just wanted to ask you about hydroponics. A lot of people hear hydroponics and aquaponics and get excited that it's this new thing and they don't really know or understand maybe why you all feel so strongly that it shouldn't be included in the national organic standards. So if you could just explain a little bit about the importance of soil and, and just how you feel about hydroponics.
2: Yeah, I think it can be a little difficult for the consumer to understand, but for the organic farmers, it was a no-brainer and the organic community just stands really strongly behind this because a lot of what we think about, and consumers don't realize this, but we think about how to maintain the fertility in our soil quite a bit. It's like it's like what most farms think about a lot because inputs are expensive, right? It's expensive to bring in even an organic fertilizer. And a lot of us got into this not um, just to farm, you know, we love to farm, but we also saw farming as a solution to a lot of our environmental problems. And the most sustainable way to farm is to actually uh, create your own fertility on the farm. That's something that you kind of learn. And when you take organic classes and permaculture classes, you know, how do you grow your own fertility? And some of the best organic farmers in the country are taking plots of land, setting them aside for at least a year, growing massive cover crops on them that are really diversified. They'll either stack enterprises and send livestock through or they'll uh, flail mow and till that under. And then that is your fertility for next year's crop. And that is the most sustainable way to farm. And when that um, gets replaced, you know, growing your own fertility Gets replaced with just let me buy this off the shelf, and you know humans can somehow figure out how to replace you know the intri- intricacies of what goes on in the soil in terms of nutrient re- release. Um, I th- I think that most organic farmers believe copying what nature does is actually the healthiest way to eat. You know we evolved eating plants off of the soils, and and it's it's smarter than we are. So it's kind of like living off of an IV and you know, we have not invented a pill to just eat every day instead of, and how much easier would that be if we didn't have to worry about food? Right. And we could just pop a pill and it's got all the nutrients that we need. That's what we're doing for the plants that we then end up eating. And I, Jeff Moyer last week said, I think we would die if we were on a hydroponic alone diet. And I don't think we know the consequences of what that would do to switch over completely to hydroponic food. Um, I think organic farmers believe right off the bat that there, there has to be something missing, just like there would be something missing if we just ate vitamins and that was it. So um, it's kind of a complex thing, uh, but th- there's a lot more to it. Uh, you know, soil, when you're adding organic matter, uh, will end up holding to water. It ends up not leaching any nutrients because if you add a liquid fertility, that can go straight into the groundwater, that can run off into the rivers. But when you're adding organic matter, it kind of holds on to those nutrients. And then as the microbes eat and break down that organic matter, it slowly, very sustainably releases these nutrients over the course of the season, as opposed to just giving it all the time. And of course, there's excess. We know there's excess. There's a dead zone at the end of the Mississippi, right? Um, And so, you know, all of these practices are so interwoven into I didn't even touch on the fact that when you're creating these inputs, now everyone is different. There's fish emulsion. um, So that's just robbing nutrients from the ocean. There's, and, and this is not all bycatch either or like the um, extra from filleting fish and things like the um, I'm not sure what it's called, but like they're, they're actually going out there and catching fish. It's not just the waste from the fishing industry. So, so that truly is robbing the ocean of nutrients. And uh, you know, the whole food cycles there, but another really common one is hydrolyzed soy. And there, there is no standard around this one that this is not on the national list of synthetic substances. Although in my opinion, it should be because they take um, conventional soy beans and they hydrolyze it. So it's almost like an amino acid slurry, like um, soy sauce or something like that. But um, to, to make it like readily available and those are all synthetic acids that that hydrolyze it. And then of course the the, we know that conventional soy production is so detrimental. And so a portion of that is going to feed these organic hydroponic industry, you know, industry. It's just, it, it makes no sense. So think about the greenhouse gases for the fertilizers used in, in, in um, conventional soy, the glyphosate, all the inputs in the tractors. This is a serious um, carbon footprint to take these um, fertilizers that are so-called organic and replace that from actually this carbon sequestering process of growing cover crops in your own input. So I, I touched on a lot of different topics here, but kind of the more you dive into this and the, and farmers truly understand and think about these processes, but it's not necessarily forefront of the consumer's mind, uh, you know, thinking about fertility and the whole life cycle of all of that. So
1: I don't know how you, how you work it into defining real organic or standards of that nature, but, but what you're talking about is kind of a, a different sort of, Worldview, a different sort of philosophy of how to farm and how we relate to nature, and that so you're dealing with these complex systems that we're actually a part of that system, and all the complexities you can't even theoretically take them all apart. You know, when you get into complexity theory, you get into issues like uh, chaos theory on the weather. It says, okay, it's so complicated; it's not even theoretically separable into all of the various components. You can simply kind of follow trends and and see some underlying principles. And then you farm according to those principles.
2: Well, and you can see it took me way too long to explain it, right? So I have a problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think the more you can work in to say, okay, this is about a way of thinking about how food ought to be produced and how it should be produced, how to work with nature as opposed to nature. And whenever we do something that, supposed to interfere with nature there's always unintended consequences that we have to expect so we should minimize the extent to which we accept things uh, and you know and i can say it simply
2: like that but it almost when you dumb it down i don't mean to say what you said was dumb but like if you if you simplify it too much it almost feels like it's a belief or a religion and what i was trying to kind of say is there's a lot of hard science to back up the problems that we're creating by not mimicking nature and so yeah you kind of look to see when people's eyes start to glaze over and then and then I stop but (laughs) there's a lot to this you know it's not just a religion there there truly is a lot of data there too
1: well science is a religion if you want to get into that that's true (laughs) it's a particular belief system about what we consider to be true and don't consider to be true And there's really no scientific method that supports that belief system about what science is.
2: Right. But it's the best system we got right now. I think I'll put, you know, at least a little faith in it. I
1: agree. I agree. I bet
0: it's a fun conversation at parties. People probably love inviting you (laughs) to parties. Oh, here she goes again. (laughs) (laughs) That happens to me. (laughs) Pesticides.
1: Uh, when you ha- met with Valsack and you talked about these things, we're focusing on the, the 2023 farm bill and the agenda coming up. So are there things that you think that could be included in the farm bill that comes up that would really move the real organic standards in the way that you think they need to go or the movement in the way you want to take it?
2: Of course, there's a lot of things that could be done. These are kind of simple, really easy solutions, but cost share is something that's way underfunded. So this, this would just allow it, you know, so right now I think it's $500. It costs me $1,200 to get certified organic. That's a barrier to small farms too. And and you front that cost until you get paid back too. So just funding cost share more for organic certification uh, that, that would be a really simple, easy thing to do and, and hardly take any money so that, you know, places like Denmark and other countries around the world are, you know, actually making organic certification free. And I think it's insane that we don't because there are so many external benefits to everyone for having more organic production so that there aren't all of these horrible side effects uh, from industrial chemical agriculture. So um, yeah, making it easier to be certified organic, for sure. Uh, I think there's a, if you if you talk to farmers, um, you know, small farms, when we get together, the things that um, we complain about our access to land. So figuring out how to get beginning uh, farmers and ranchers And, and not just fringe land, what's happening out here in the arid West is that farmers can't afford land with water. And a lot of this good farmland with great water rights is getting paved over. And of course, you know, it's watering lawns and they've got their little decorative ponds. That's what's happening to our beautiful farmland. Um, out West and that's the use of the water. And this year, a lot of the farmers that have, we call it the dry side, just West of Durango. That's where a lot of farmers could afford land and they've they've had good irrigation water out there but this year they're getting cut off in June. And so, you know, the best organic farmers in our area are not gonna be able to farm. And yet we have everybody still watering their lawns and filling their ponds, you know, their decorative ponds. I think we, we really need to readdress water in the Southwest. And I'm sure the farm bill can, can take that issue on. Um, although it's going to be complicated, uh, yes, land access. So good land. I think that needs to be tackled in the farm bill. And it also needs to be tackled on a community level. You know, I, I think in, um, land codes and things like that, land needs to be set aside for local ag and, um, you know, having, having a way for farmers to be able to get started and figure out how to farm. And then maybe once they have run their businesses there for a few years, they would then be able to apply for loans. You know, if they've got money on the books um, and, and start their own farms. So I really believe in that uh, access to land was a huge uh, hump that we had to get over um, getting started farming. The other thing that I think is horrible is um, crop insurance. I, John, you probably know so much more about this than I do, but like, I know that a lot of the commodity crops, like you get paid if you're just growing corn, you know, the second you put it in the ground, you're guaranteed a certain price. Right. Um, and, and here, you know, we have so many stories of farms that bought insurance and you know they come out and they don't have the organic pricing right, you know. Right. So you've got an acre of heirloom tomatoes and they're they're putting a price on it at like twenty nine cents a pound, and it's like, excuse me, no, I get four dollars a pound right. at market. Right. So it's it's not covering. And even if you have the documentation, you know, of course, it wouldn't help new farmers either who don't have that seven years of documentation. Right. And even when they look at those seven years, um, it's an average over those seven years, and so that doesn't you know keep up with the fact that in the last you know, three years, look at how my operation has changed from the beginning. And so it shouldn't be an average because I was just starting out here. Right. right? So uh, there's some serious problems with crop insurance for diversified veggie farmers right. in particular.
1: Have you uh, thought about going into the whole farm revenue insurance that was uh, kind of proposed for diversified farms like organic farms would be where you you insure the overall farm revenue. In the case of the of the commodities, they have options. They can insure the production or they can insure the production and the price, which makes it kind of revenue insurance. But once they've locked in a price and a production level that gives them a guaranteed profit, they can go out and plant the whole county in corn or soybeans and know that they're they're going to make money on it. I talked to a large farmer one time at a conference and he was bragging about the fact that he could go out and he was renting a machinery and hiring the labor and, and, and leasing the land. And then he says, I can be guaranteed like $200 an acre before I ever plant the crop. And I know right. exactly what I'm going to pay for everything. I know exactly what I'm going to get out of it. So how do you compete with that? But anyway, the whole farm Absolutely. revenue insurance, uh, McKinsey and I were involved with a group that put together a proposal where we proposed that you insure net revenue for, like a farm family to transition into, we were talking about regenerative agriculture, but what about a, a whole farm net revenue insurance program while you're transitioning from conventional to organic or while you're starting an organic operation that basically would ensure the family income, let's say if it's a farm family during that period of time, not based on overall production level, but just say during the transition period, you'll be able to make a family living that's on par with the non-farm families in your area.
2: It's a great idea, John. And and the whole farm revenue was absolutely the way to go for crop insurance as well.
1: I know USDA has never promoted that program much. I was at a couple of conferences where they would have the the sales representative there for crop insurance. And he would say, well, we have this program, but you don't want to mess with that. They're going to ask you for your tax records and it's going to be complicated. He didn't want to deal with the aggravation of filling out the insurance. It's much easier to go out and get several thousand commodity crops, you know, insured. But anyway, that's an aside. Yeah,
2: that 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 was the big surprise of farming is, you know, a lot of us get into it because we like to work the land and then you realize, oh, I got to keep track of all this and I got to have good books. And, you know, spreadsheets can be my best tool for my business. So, you know, Michael Kilpatrick has a podcast now and there's a lot of farmers trying to teach other farmers how important, yeah. you know, the business side of it is. But um, yeah, you'll make, you'll make money and you'll survive as a farm if you figure out how to do it and just get yeah. over that hump.
1: Yeah, well, our proposal would be basically you just use the federal income tax you file for your farm income and that's basically what it would be.
0: That makes sense. Yeah we got to get you in front of Vilsac, John so you can explain our proposal.
1: Another thing I wanted to ask about land access I know more and more people are dealing with this what do you think about access to land where you don't actually own it, but you have long-term lease. Do you think that would work for organic producers to get into that kind of arrangement? I really agree with you that you need to learn to farm first before you even get into a 99-year leasing situation, but do you think that would be acceptable? There's something about land ownership that seems to be sort of magical, so that's the reason I'm asking this question.
2: Well, that's what I was going to say. There is something magical about land ownership. And for me, and everybody's different. I've talked to a lot of young farmers where that wasn't as important. Um, For me, it was very important. I do think it is important to be able to live next to the farm, because there's so much that that you have to just tweak, you know, constantly, especially if you have tunnels or, you know, irrigation set up, all that stuff. You're it's a way of life and it becomes incorporated into your life. And, uh, it was really hard the years that I was renting. I was only 10 minute drive from the farm, but it was really hard. Um, it was just so separated from, from my life. Maybe some people like that. So I think it could work for me. It wasn't enough. And, um, I do like the idea of long-term ownership. I have invested so much in wash stations and, you know, permanent greenhouses and fencing. And so it, it has to be a lifelong situation. And, you know, even the idea of being able to, um, retire off of the land, um, you know, hopefully pass it on to another farmer, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to save up for retirement. And for a lot of farmers that, that, that is their retirement plan is is their land. Um, or maybe they want to stay there till they die. So I I can understand that there's a lot of barriers there, but I do feel that it takes several years to learn how to do this. And I feel very strongly that we as a community need to come together and and teach each other. And and so these uh, um, farm trusts and things where a lot of beginning farmers, or maybe even farmers that Decide. I don't need to buy my own land. You know, this is a much better lifestyle. I don't have to put so much of my income into the mortgage payment. Um, I'll stay here for life. I I think. First of all, the community wants to get on the farm. When I was renting land in town, it was I was fortunate enough that the community had their CSA pickup there. You know, we had work shares. I can't do that anymore uh, where I am because you cross in front of, you know, the driveways of other people and turn off of a kind of a dangerous road. And so I need permits for all that. So the community can figure out how to make land available, both for beginning farmers, farmers that want to, don't care about owning their own land and want to have a lifelong lease and run their businesses, maybe even market together. We have a local cooperative that's all farmer owned. And that's the only way I can see us breaking into some of the systems that are not designed for us in the retail space, Um, but that we can have like kind of a more even product availability to get onto the grocery store shelves. I think we need to be working together for all these things. It's, it's too overwhelming. Um, And it's not just for the farmers, you know, the community wants our food. There really is a taste difference. And then of course, all the environmental impacts of of farming chemically as well.
0: We also really want to ask you, I know you listened to our interview last week with Jeff Moyer from Rodale Institute. Jeff talked a lot about transitioning big swaths of land to organic and their recent partnership with Cargill, specifically with the poultry company, Bell and Evans. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of that. And also your personal or real organic projects, Theory of change when it comes to this idea of transitioning big conventional farmland to organic and how we do that and how we really grow the organic movement, but like you said, keeping that organic integrity.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. Of course, you know we need. It's kind of like an example of like we need Walmart to just you know be more green. Of course, we need that kind of change. Um, the The problem that is, it's not really where I want my efforts to go because I feel like the whole system needs to change, and that's just working within a broken system. When we interviewed Paul Hawken for the symposium, he gave this great story of like you know Pepsi going regenerative, and he was so funny. He was like, you know, we all stand around and clap, and you know, like a circus seal. I think he said, you know, way to go, Pepsi, but do we really want you know Pepsi to be what everybody drinks you know it's making us unhealthy so no we actually need Pepsi not to exist and right. I feel the same way about um, you know industrial agriculture I don't want to work on fixing industrial agriculture and converting more acreage to organic because right now that organic grain that's being converted to organic is actually going to organic CAFOs. now I know Jeff Moyer wants to change that too but I just feel like, For me personally, what I want is systematic change. You know, I I don't want that huge industrial agricultural system. And of course, it's great that people are working on converting it to organic, but that's not real change in my opinion. I I actually want thousands of small, diversified, regenerative organic farms surrounding every community and and feeding its community. So that's that's the world that I want to work towards creating. Um, When we interviewed Alan Savory, too, he talked about holistic management and holistic thinking, you know, going beyond just, you know, how to properly graze using holistic thinking, sure. he's like, we need to incorporate this into our everyday lives and our policy and decision making, envision the world that you want to live in and work towards creating that change. And so of course everything that Rodale and Jeff Moir is doing to to change industrial agriculture and make it better is important. I, I have no illusion thinking that, you know, my world is going to come around anytime soon, but but I do want to focus on, on creating that world and working towards that world.
1: What about actually just separating it out and saying, okay, the existing organic standards basically do this. They prohibit certain chemical pesticides, fertilizers, things of that nature. They prohibit that. They prohibit GMOs various other things. But that's basically what they are. And it's what current certification of organic is. It's maybe one step toward real organic. And then just be upfront about it and say, this is not where we want to end up. This is kind of yeah. where we're starting.
2: Absolutely. I think that's what the Real Organic Proud Project label is. And, you know, it would be great if the government would come around and make all those changes. I don't think they're going to do it. The reality is we need the organic movement to continue to push that continuous improvement and to differentiate right. ourselves that way. So even if they did, I hope the Real Organic Project would would stay together as, as right. you know the voice of the movement.
1: I'm just saying it might be just as well to recognize, okay, we've taken the first step, but it's only the first step. And yeah. you can still go that step with an industrial operation, just make people keenly aware of it. You can have the current organic system with a CAFO. You can have the current organic system with hydroponics. You can have these various things. Okay, if you're satisfied with that, then go ahead and buy organic at Walmart or organic at uh, Kroger or wherever it is. Just, yeah, I think you for want. the
2: elders, though, right, that was a shock to have to digest the fact that this movement that they created is now, yeah. you know, not only the floor, it's like a basement level. It's yeah. just not at all what they imagined. But um,
0: I'm curious with the original people that were on the National Organic Standards Board, what they're all thinking. I know Jay Feldman is part of Real Organic Project and involved, but how about everybody else? Is everyone kind of saying, yeah, we we did think of this, but it's turned into something else or are there a lot of people who still stand by the original?
2: I think, especially Jay Feldman, I learned from him that, you know, the the law is really well written. The Organic Foods Production Act is is is, we don't need a new law. He, he said, we just need enforcement of what we currently have. And if we would enforce that law, I mean, a lot of actually these ideas that I'm talking about in real organic are in the law. Mm-hmm. And so, so a lot of them don't want to walk away from it or give up on it. They, they still believe in reform. I think they're acknowledging how unsuccessful that has been in the last mm-hmm. 20 years though.
0: <laughs> so would the goal be for this to be adopted, these changes to be made into the current organic standards or for the USDA to adopt this new certification. I know you said you don't want to abandon government. Do you see yourselves as staying separate as this alternative label?
2: I think for now, especially after meeting with Vilsack, when we saw that some of the major, you know, the five problems that I've listed a couple of times here that that many of them aren't going to get addressed, if any. um, I I don't see us going anywhere for a long time. Of course, you know, there's... um, countries out there like Denmark where I feel like if if that's the way our government handled themselves and they truly embraced organic they've got a plan to shift all of their agriculture toward organic right. not only is it free but you know they're exchanging knowledge with the farmers about how to do it and they're on this transition for the entire country to go organic if that's the way our government acted I'm sure we wouldn't be needed
1: there's one other thing I want to talk about you've talked about this somewhat during our conversation thus far but I wanted to kind of get your perspective Personally, you know, we're we're interested in, in guiding young people. I think it's going to take more young people to make the transition that we're talking about. Too many old people have too much invested in the current way of doing things; they're not going to abandon it. But what got you into uh, organic farming, and what do you see going on among the younger people today about wanting to get into organic farming? What's the motivation? What's the inspiration? What's it going to take? That sort of thing, just from a personal perspective.
2: I think it's so different for everybody. I can tell my personal story, but sure. like I farm with my brother and even he, he got here in a different way. Uh, my husband too. Um, so for me, I, I've got a farmer gene, you know, I grew up in Baltimore in the middle of the city and I was knocking on neighbor's doors for their compost. <laughs> and I was just kind of fascinated, you know, composting and growing a tomato. My first lesson was even like there was too much nitrogen. I'd used too much poop, you know, from a, like a, um, a, the like the hay and uh, manure of a horse, you know, outside of town, I brought it in, my tomato was only leaves, you know, so um, figured out, okay, I need to use vegetable compost from all my neighbors. And then I had a much healthier garden that way. So I was kind of a kid that was really into this kind of weird, but uh, my brother, you know, studied environmentalism and and went and worked for the solar industry for a while and, and went back to school in permaculture design. Uh, I think he ended up realizing that farming just interconnects so many of the different problems that he cared about, you know, social issues too. And so for him, it was such an obvious, okay, this is a solution. If I care about the world, I, I can go into farming and I can feel really good about my living. So I, I think a lot of people come into it for that. And the thing that I love about the real organic project is so many people are coming into farming with zero experience (laughs) and wanting to do it and wanting to work hard too. And like I said, there's so many barriers, land access in particular, but you know, capital in terms of like, you know, getting business loans and things, it just, um, we need help and, uh, you know, working on farms that are willing to teach and, um, you know, feeling, I, I feel like this kind of hand came from up above the older generation and said, here, you know, let me help mm. you along. And that, that helped in terms of getting affordable land for us. Um, you know, just a family really wanted to pass their land on to farmers. So they gave us a better deal. Um, I, I feel like there's so many different ways that the community can come together and, and help the next generation because we desperately need it. We have so many challenges to overcome.
1: I always tell young people that don't get into farming, particularly not sustainable or organic farming, unless you feel that's your calling that that's what you're put here on yeah. earth to do. It's the most physically intellectually challenging occupation I could possibly think of
2: that that was true for me, but i've I've seen a lot of people come around to it as like you know this is the solution that the world needs yeah. right now, and they kind of rise to it. They didn't have it in them initially,
1: but they feel like that's their calling, right? That's the way they're going to make their contribution.
2: My brother wouldn't say it was his calling, um, but it is. Yeah, it is. It feels right, you know, but it took him a while to get here to to figure that out. Whereas for me, it was like I was born into it. I had a farmer gene or something.
0: And how much of your time now day to day is spent farming versus computer stuff?
2: I'm a workaholic. So I, I work for the real organic Project, you know, full time. And then I get out on the farm a couple hours in the evenings and on the weekends. And I just, I just love it. You know, it's, it's definitely a part of my lifestyle.
0: We want to always end episodes with giving listeners a couple of things that they can do. If you have any advice for people listening to this, how they can get involved, support our agenda for the 2023 farm bill what would you say to listeners?
2: I guess I would ask them, you know, think about the things that are important to them. And, um, oftentimes the local organic farming movement is the solution. So it might even just be, I want to feel good and feel healthy. And it's amazing. You know, when you're young, you can do anything to your body and it usually recovers, but so many people come and eat our food because they don't feel great eating the other kind of food. And, And they, they, you know, not only is the flavor and the taste just so much better, but they want to feel better. And so I think when you start talking to people and you realize what their priorities are, uh, a lifestyle where they can take their kids out and and do a UPIC, pick, you know, maybe have some more green space in their life or just feel healthier. A lot of times that comes back to supporting local farming. And so I think just listening to each other, having those conversations, you know, what are the challenges in your own life? You know, maybe they're, um, suffering from poor water or you know some sort of pollution and then like tracing it back to you know the the agricultural system that's caused you know that that toxic thing in their life or maybe they have asthma because of the poor air quality and so i just i think it's also interconnected for a healthy like life that we all want to live it comes back to farming. So if you don't even want to farm, and many people do want to farm, like I said, only one in 20 in my community, I think that's about right, are making it. And so even if just that changed, but I think a lot of people would enjoy this kind of lifestyle, even if it wasn't a part of their everyday job, but being able to be on a farm, so many people want that. And, and if we can all kind of see that vision of thousands of farms surrounding our community and, and, you know, what kind of world that is that, that would, um, you know, just how much healthier and happier we would all be. I think uh, just kind of on a grander kind of Alan Savory level, like let's all focus on local food systems as the answer to so many of these other issues.
1: So how can people support the real organic movement with respect to policies that you're pursuing things of that nature? You have a website where people can go and connect and we any do. way that they can mm-hmm. provide support. Do you tell them when you need support? You have a way where you can send out emails and things.
2: Yeah, we have a weekly email. If you're really into it, you can read, um, get, get wonked out on all the deep policy. We're, we're really actively involved, um, very busy. So not only, you know, certifying all these farms around the country, but we're, we're trying to make a change, you know, at the policy level as well, or at least have a voice there. So read those weekly uh, letters if you want. If you don't want that much interaction, um, we have a way to become a real fan and you can sign up on our website. You can donate along with that or you don't have to. Uh, Some of it is just like we'll have an ask to go into your local grocery store and ask if you have any real organic project uh, certified products for sale. And a lot of times in this early stage, because we're only three years into existence, the the produce spiral say, what's that? Sure. You know, and so you got to tell them what it is. And so little things like that. Um, we we keep you busy, uh, just spreading the word at your local farmers markets to the farmers might not know about us or to other eaters. We had an absolutely fabulous symposium that you can still sign up to watch. It was over 10 hours of footage with 80 different uh organic leaders, John Eichard was one of them we interviewed. And uh, so you could watch that really learn. It's much better than Mm -hmm. any Netflix, you know, thing that you're attached (laughs) to right now, try to like bring some information into your brain. But it really, it really is um, just kind of a reinvigoration of the movement that started, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And it's, it's great to be part of it. It's really fun.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you this morning, learn a lot more about you and your organization. I think it's been a real pleasure. I really congratulate you on the work that you've done. I really wish you the best in the future.
0: Yeah, it was so
2: great to chat with you. Oh, thank you, John. Thank you, Mackenzie, for having me. I always want to talk to you all.
0: We'll go meet up in Iowa and visit John rather in person. <laughs> and we'd love to see your farm in Colorado too. We'll make that happen.
2: It's a plan. All right. Oh, I should put a shout out too. our, all our inspectors are going to be on the road this summer. And so if you follow us on Instagram, you're going to get to see their travels. So that might be a fun way to get
0: involved. Oh, that's so fun. I will do that right now. (laughs) Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. See you next time. Sounds good.